0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of season three of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Jed.
1: And I'm Alistair. And I'm Louis. And as you can hear from our surprise guest voice, we have a slightly different format this week. We uh, have invited Louis on after he got in contact with us. When uh, I think it was before your episode, Jed, about the six o'clock swill, your clue was something a little bit obscure and vague about surely not an institution that had changed every uh, every town and suburb in in Sydney and possibly also New South Wales, uh, which was a bold claim. I think in the end it was very well substantiated <laughs> by your episode uh but i guessed that uh that it might have be bolos and we both got quite excited about the the possibility of talking about bolos and lo and behold a few months later we got an email from louis who uh, did his uh honors thesis i believe yep. uh on uh on the history of bolos in sydney and their uh significance in the urban fabric of the city today and It just seemed like such an interesting thesis that I thought it would be much better to actually invite Louis on to talk about it himself rather than me try to rehash it in my own words. So it's a bit of an experimental format today, um, but we're really excited to have uh, Louis on to tell us a story that both of us were obviously very enthusiastic about, the history of bolos in Sydney. So uh, Louis, to get us started, how did you get so interested in bolos that you decided to write an entire thesis about them?
2: Um, Well, I played lawn bowls in school, actually, which was a pretty niche sport to play, but it meant I didn't have to travel across city on my Saturdays, so I took that up, and then a few years later, I just got back from traveling, was looking for a job, and my friend had a job at the Clavelli Bowling Club, and uh, I wandered down, asked for a job, and yeah, one thing led to another, and I ended up working there for about three years, and just became fascinated with them, and just started visiting them when I travelled across the state and just really fell in love with them.
1: Awesome. That's um, I didn't realise that you'd actually played uh
2: Warren Bowling as yeah, well. Yeah, captain and most improved. Yeah, do you have full
1: whites? <laughs> Close to it, yeah. I'm quite interested <laughs> that you managed to be both the captain and the MVP, which imply that you got the captaincy with quite a lot of improvements still required. Yeah,
2: I remember my last match. I almost <laughs> lost to a kid in year eight, and I think I bullied him into... <laughs> Missing one of those final shots because I could not go down to a kid in your right? <laughs> yeah, well,
0: it's a fairly easy sport to fudge the results of it. No one's paying too close attention. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Awesome. Before we begin uh, this episode with our special guest, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this story takes place, which since it's a quite a broad story of uh, Sydney's development of bolos, would be... All of the different groups of the Eora nation, and then also of other nations such as the Darug um, in west Great Western Sydney, amongst others. All right, so let's get into it. I think we all have a a lot of questions. I have almost no idea about the history of bowls and why they're everywhere in Sydney. Uh, It was just kind of something I took for granted. I think. Did you, Jed? Do you have any kind of prerequisite knowledge?
0: Well, I was thinking we could maybe start with just a very brief background on what bowls is in case someone's thinking about, um, you know, 10 pins at the bowl or armour.
2: All right. Well, Lawn Bowls is a game played on a big grass surface, neatly manicured, so it's not grass of like a footy pitch. The aim of the game in Lawn Bowls is to roll your balls as close to the jack, which is a white ball at the other end of and the tricky bit is that the balls are weighted Mm. so you would either bowl them out to the right or to the left um, watch them swing back in and try and land them as close to the jack as possible
0: and the classic rookie error is when you mistake which side the weighting's on and your ball arcs gracefully away into someone (laughs) else's game three lanes down
2: yeah Yeah.
1: ruining a competitive game on the other side of the green
2: i can't tell you how many times that happened or or when I explain that the balls are weighted and people just continue to just bowl them dead straight and <laughs> wonder why. Um, but yeah, so you score points by if your ball is the closest ball to the jack, you get one point for that ball, and for every other ball you have before an opponent hasn't a ball, so say you had the three closest balls, you'd get three points for that round. And culturally in Australia it's associated
0: with a certain generation of people. Yeah. Most of whom are probably no longer with us. Mm-hmm so i think that my understanding of lawn bowls anyway from a from an urban geography point of view is that there was this moment in history where it just went absolutely gangbusters and it coincided with the development of i guess the sort of more automobile centric suburbs so we had all these new suburbs being built right when this sport was super popular and so they were just getting laid down all over the place bowling green bowling green bowling green one in every suburb yeah and then from that point on that was the sort of peak of the game's popularity it never got beyond that it's just been a very slow and steady decline
2: since then yeah i think at the peak there was 210 bowling clubs in sydney alone right and how many are we down to now we're down to 128 okay so we're still
0: we're still doing we're still about 50% i that's yeah. probably a larger proportion than, than i would have thought yeah. yeah although i do notice a lot of um a lot of greens have repurposed or yeah. bowling clubs have repurposed one green so like say half of their bowling exactly, area yeah, into... that's one of their
2: survival tactics is to just sell off a bit of land for a quick cash injection
1: yeah or make it a beer garden or something like that.
2: yeah exactly yeah it's you, like there's no sustainable way to operate like because greens are also so costly to maintain trying to maintain three greens for maybe 50 bowlers is just not sustainable clubs realize that they couldn't survive by themselves so they would amalgamate membership with another club um, and sometimes that resulted in one club being sold off to developers or whatever, and then all the members go into that club. But sometimes they just, one club saw an opportunity with another smaller club, so they would amalgamate and they would then run that smaller club. And so that's why today you've got some clubs such as East Leagues who own, I think, three bowling clubs. So it's Waverley Bowling Club, Kingswood Sports Club, and Berkeley Bowling Club. And you, if you live in the area, you will have noticed that Waverley got knocked down late last year and it's currently being redeveloped into a large seniors housing development multiple stories and they are retaining the two bowling greens but it'll be interesting to see how long they last mm. that, like, that's my main concern is who's going to want to go to a bowling club that's surrounded by eight stories of seniors housing the residents yeah exactly but then
1: <laughs> but then it's more of a private bowling club, bowling right? club than a
2: than a social yeah. it's just a, it's like it's a yeah facilities for the the people that live there rather than the community
0: mm.
1: yeah so this is all really fascinating um and obviously you have a very keen audience here I'm very interested in the bowling club. Yeah. um but there's uh, i think something that i've always wondered and i imagine you might have too a jet is it seems like the kind of quintessentially british sport in a way like especially with the lawns mm. that are perfectly manicured and the, the wearing the whites and yeah. very very british in that way but i i don't know anything about the history of balls or how and why it got to australia or, and why it's so popular here and so uh, i was wondering if you could kind of take us back and how how did uh, people come to play this quaint game with balls that are weighted more on one side of the than the other <laughs> and, uh, and uh manicured
2: greens okay yeah sure so i'll actually take you even further back than england i'll take you back to 3200 bc excellent So the first recorded bowls-related sport is thought to be a game played by the ancient Egyptians. Uh, Two people, one with a small ball and one with a large ball, would stand at either end of a lane, which had a hole in the middle. The person with the smaller ball would aim to get their ball in the hole, while the person with the larger ball tried to block that ball. And I'm just guessing they took it in turns till someone got it in the hole, I'm, I'm not too sure. Um, But in the following centuries, ball games were invented across the world, um, many of which are still popular today, including bocce for the Italians. So this is similar to bowls, but the balls aren't weighted, so they roll straight. Right. Mm -mm. Um, Are they kind of
1: metal often, like silvery
2: coloured? That's, I think, bulls or patong, which is the French game.
1: They're very similar. So, so lots of cultures have their own version. Yeah,
2: and these ones, are the balls are lobbed rather than rolled, Yeah, I believe. Okay. I'm not sure if there's a difference between balls and petonka. I don't want to offend anyone, but... Yeah. It's, no, there's yeah. definitely
1: one where they, where they throw it. That's definitely... Kind of, yeah, like... It doesn't even really bounce. Just it just... Boom, boom, yeah, they
2: play that on, like, grass or on dirt. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely balls. Okay. Um, that's your more casual picnic game. Exactly, yeah. They do... There's, like, different variations across the world. Like, I was in Malta... And they were playing a similar one where they were standing in like a hula hoop and throwing it oh, yeah. on like this big dirt, like arena almost. It had like seating around it. Oh, um, yeah. So there's different variations, I'm sure, across the world similar.
1: Right, because it's a, sim- a simple concept. But yeah. yeah, you can do just
2: get the ball close to the other <laughs> ball. Like. But the, the first game of lawn bowls, as we know it today, was played in England during the early part of the 12th century. And the first proper bowling green was laid in 1299 at a club bluntly named... Southampton Old Bowling Green. That's
1: a good name. Yeah,
2: and that club is actually still active today. Uh, Classic England. Mm -hmm. Uh, The sport grew in popularity throughout the 14th century and was enjoyed by people of all classes. However, Mm -hmm. this was a worry for the king as he believed the practice of archery was being neglected for bowls, which would ultimately impact their military power. Mm. So as a result, laws were introduced banning the game for common people in 1361 and upheld until 1845. Wow. Yeah. So quite a long okay. time.
1: So at the kind of arrival of the first fleet in the early years of the colony actually for quite a that would have been a sport that technically in England was not available to common
2: people. No, during this time it was only played by noble noble men and noble women and members of the monarchy including King Henry III, Queen Victoria and Anne bowling, bowling. <laughs> <laughs> so named because yeah. of her affinity yeah. for the game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: was that... I mean, I imagine it'd be quite hard to up- uphold the law like that because it's like anyone can get their hands on a round thing and throw it near another round thing. But uh...
2: Yeah, I think the tricky thing was that they just didn't have the facilities such as the bowling greens to play it on right. so they weren't given access to... That's probably why the game requires such pretentiously neat grass i think ship, they were right? primarily built in the estates right. of those noble men and noble women and so the common people just couldn't play it meanwhile yeah. the french got <laughs> yeah. rid of the monarchy and they just use any
0: old patch of dirt mm, just throw a <laughs> couple rocks together
1: it says a lot about your, uh, your culture doesn't it how you mm. play bowls. Mm. yeah okay interesting so because uh, i think i might have read somewhere that like Windsor Castle might have a couple of bowling greens or something like that. that. So is that still the case there?
2: I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. yeah. Def- it was definitely a game in England played by the, the elite.
1: Yeah, fascinating. Yeah.
2: So mid-19th century,
0: mm-hmm. they opened it back up to the commoners. Was there a huge rush on,
2: on bowls shops at that point in time? <laughs> or people were kind of not interested anymore. They preferred archery. <laughs> Um, well, it certainly took off in Australia. I didn't, I kind of gave up looking on England. I know it's not as big in England just because of the weather, I think, is the main reason. You'd spend most of your time sitting in drizzle. I um, actually,
1: I asked my, because it's Christmas time, mm. uh, recently, I was in contact with my English relatives and I asked them about bowls mm. and they, there are definitely bowling greens there. Uh, they definitely have the same perception that it's kind of generally older people who are playing in, yep. um. But they definitely do seem to have greens but i i don't have the feeling that there's quite as many here it really does seem like they're
2: everywhere yeah i'm not too sure how much it took off after that i kind of just focused on australia from 1845 onwards but right okay
1: but was it the same in australia that until 1845 it was kind of not allowed or
2: i'm not sure because the first bowling green wasn't laid in australia until 1845
1: okay so but that could be a reason why Yeah. yeah
2: Could be. Okay. So, is it in- immediate? As soon as it was legal, <laughs> yeah, bang, we got like a green. It, literally. Yeah, wow. And where was this one? So, oh, do want to... Co- I'll come back to it. Um, oh, yeah, yeah,
1: Have you got some more intermediate yeah, just, history to come in? I think...
2: Yeah. Have you guys seen Cracker Jack? I haven't. I, I've, I've got it on my hard drive. You haven't? No. The most revered story of bowls during this period, as so often told by Bill Hunter, throughout the classic Australian film Cracker Jack, was the game involving English naval officer Sir Francis Drake. On July 18, 1588, Drake was playing a game of bowls in Plymouth when he was informed the Spanish Armada were approaching. He famously responded, We still have time to finish the game, and thrash the Spaniards too. And he did indeed defeat the Armada, and as for the game of bowls, the result is unknown. But according to Hunter, he won the game and the battle at sea too, because the great Sir Francis Drake didn't know the meaning of the word defeat. (laughs)
1: Uh, so uh, it's funny that you mentioned this Francis Drake story because that was the only other thing that my relatives could tell me is that one of them was like, "Oh, I know a story about Francis Drake that he was playing it." And then apparently, then my uh, my uncle mm. uh, poo pooed that story, saying that it was just an urban myth. But I like to think that it was true.
2: Well, that's what Bill Hunter says throughout the movie as well. So it's a running trope in the movie. This story, he he
1: kind
0: of yeah throughout the movie. Listen,
2: he... Yeah, I should have done my homework and watched the movie. It's it's one of the best. <laughs> I well, I definitely will yeah. after this. Um, so fortunately, the aforementioned ban on bowls never applied to Scotland, where the popularity of the game grew over the years. Oh. Uh, it was the Scots who developed the game, establishing rules, codes of law, and playing attire. Yeah, interesting.
1: Actually, also in preparation for this episode, did a tiny bit of research on America. I don't know whether you were interested, because no. when I was living in America, yeah. definitely a noticeable lack of bowling. <laughs> they did have them mm. again the same kind of thing—a very prestigious upper-class sport. Mm. Uh, Washington and um, Thomas Jefferson had a, a bowling green, like any kind of well-to-do person would have in the time Yeah. but upon the revolution it was seen as like too quintessentially British and so they were removed from all of those uh, kind of slave owning huge estate uh, wealthy people's manners and they really kind of just never never came back they were shunned as an English sport and that's I, th- I guess partly maybe why tempin bowling is uh, such a popular thing in America.
2: Yeah um, so, I've broken the next 175 years into five periods just to help break down. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so, this is uh, this is post-1845. This is when, uh...
2: 1845 onwards. Uh, the first period I've classified as 1845 to 1877, and this is the introduction of bowls to Australia. The sport was brought to Australia by colonial settlers and first played in the summer of 1845 on a bowling green at Lipskins Beach Tavern in Hobart. Oh. The first greens in Australia were constructed by hoteliers who laid them next to their inns or taverns to attract gatherings of men who had the desire to play bowls using their knowledge and rules from abroad. The first recorded green in New South Wales was installed at the Woolpack Inn on Parramatta Road, Petersham in August of 1845. So that's located... I'm not sure if you know where the Salvos is on Parramatta Road, kind of near, like, Drummond Gulf. We're talking near the light rail, stop, Taverners Hill. It's more towards... Is it Johnson Street? Uh-huh, yep. Yeah, that kind of area. It's where the King Living Furniture is. It was there.
0: Yep, no, I know that spot. So there was a pub there, no longer with us, that was home to the state's first bowling green. In New South Wales, yep. Yeah, yep. the state's first, yeah. Colony,
2: sorry. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> Got your own technicalities there?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, also in 1845, another green was laid at the Boundary Stone Inn, which was located at the southeastern corner of Burke and Cleveland streets. Mm-hmm. There's a
1: kebab shop near there, isn't there? There is. Yeah, I think that's on the corner. Mm. What's the name of <coughs> that? I think there's also a pub there.
0: Bar Cleveland.
1: Yeah. There's the kebab shop, diagonally opposite, Golden PD, opposite Bar so Cleveland. So you said
0: southwest corner? Southeastern. Bur- Bur- southeast.
2: Okay. Now a shop.
1: The shop of some sort but fascinating so that was the second mm, that was the second, second. Bowling green.
2: and our old friend sir joseph banks hotel pops up again so a green was laid there in the 1850s however it was said to be a very rough green with bare knuckle fights and cock fighting also hosted on the green so i'm assuming there's probably more of a patch of grass rather than a manicured green
1: <laughs> and that's uh, sir joseph banks hotel is from our episode about
0: um joe johnson the uh
2: yeah
1: yeah the but first, uh, heavyweight, the first black heavyweight, um, world champion, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: down in Botany, yeah, mm. yes, that's interesting because I always thought after Alistair's story, I thought of the Sir Joseph Banks Hotel as quite a classy establishment. and Now you're telling me it's home to bare knuckle fights <laughs> and cockfighting.
2: <laughs> well, this is in the 1850s, so I'm not, oh,
1: yeah, I thought it would have been classy back then. I think by the end of the 1800s, it had, um, Become a little bit more run down. Uh, but yeah,
0: I don't know. Maybe the green started out nice and then deteriorated with the hotel's
2: yeah. fortunes. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, maybe it was lovely at first. And then by we, we, we yeah. we're hearing a story about cockfighting and bare knuckle fights from later on.
2: Yeah. And in the late 1860s, a green was laid at another pub named the Woolpack Inn, this one in Parramatta. And it was here the Woolpack Club was formed. Uh, this is regarded as one of, if not the first, serious bowling club in New South Wales. And it lasted about 10 years until it was absorbed by the Rose Hill bowling club. The Woolpack Inn is still located in Parramatta, but it's on the other side of the road to where the original one was. Okay. And what about our oldest surviving green? Um, there's one more one that hasn't didn't survive, but it's a pretty important one. The Annandale bowling club in 1878 Uh, This club was established by John Young, who was a pretty big figure in Sydney at the time. Uh, Young worked as a building contractor responsible for the development of many iconic Sydney buildings, including substantial sections of St Mary's Cathedral, the Department of Lands Building, and the General Post Office. Mm. He also served terms as the Mayor of Leichhardt, Mayor of Annandale, and the Mayor of Sydney. Uh, But arguably, his most important contribution was the establishment of the Annandale Bowling Club in 1878 and the New South Wales Bowling Association in 1880.
0: Right. Yeah, so he's wow. the f- he's the father of bowling in New yeah. South Wales. Yeah,
2: Young is definitely regarded as the the pioneer of bowls cool. in New South Wales. Yep.
0: And he's dropped his name onto a few streets in the Annandale area, if I'm not mistaken. You're,
2: yeah, you would be correct. And his estate, Kentville, no longer exists, but there are Kentville Lane and Kentville Avenue, located just off Johnson Street towards the Glebe Foreshore.
0: As well as young street and sir john young crescent
2: yeah he's around a bit (laughs) he's done well for himself
1: Mm -hmm. yeah like a like builders to this day in sydney profession to be in
2: (laughs) yeah young hosted the first ever intercolonial bowling match between victoria and new south wales which victoria won 112 shots to 91 And the publicity of this match spiked an interest in bowls, which prompted the establishment of the Balmain Bowling Club, which still exists today. Uh Uh-huh. And the City Bowling Club, which is formerly formerly located on the site of the Cook and Phillip Pool. Yep. In the city.
1: Ah, see, I, I... I remember reading that when yeah. you sent me a thesis and I was driving past Cook and Phillip a couple of days ago and yeah.
2: it's like, oh, there used to be something there but I've forgotten what it was. I read about it. But that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. However, at the time, no two clubs played the same rules and inter-club games were rarely played. This led to the formation of the New South Wales Bowling Association, which was the first bowling association in the world. Uh,
1: so that does seem
2: to imply that New South Wales has a particular passion for
0: the Despite sport. losing to yeah. Victoria. It's
2: Seems to be in our first
0: intercolonial match.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it seemed to kind of start in Tassie and then migrate to Melbourne and kind of just, I think in the early years it was New South Wales and Victoria who were the, the two big wigs. Yeah, so Young was elected the president of the association, which had 200 members at the time from the various existing clubs. So the second period, which I'll talk about, is from 1878 to 1913, and this is the formation of the first clubs in Sydney. As the popularity of the sport grew, bowlers sought to establish clubs in their local area. This was made easier by the fact many bowlers at the time had influential roles in society with connections to or positions within local government. Uh, This was the case for the Randwick Bowling Club established in 1894 by Alderman Harry Francis, the Mayor of Randwick and a keen bowler. Francis was successful in securing a 15-year lease for the site from the state government for an annual rent of £45. I imagine it was quite a good deal, given that he was a... the the mayor. (laughs) Yeah, bowlers also established several of the clubs on public parkland, from which a pocket would be gifted or leased, sometimes contentiously. For example, the city bowling club's grounds were secured on a rent-free lease from the trustees of Hyde, Cook and Phillip Parks. Clubs continued to establish themselves across the city, and by 1913, there were 23 active clubs in Sydney. These clubs were all located within developed residential suburbs in the inner west, eastern suburbs, and lower north shore. Interesting. Okay, so at
1: this time it seems like this was people with a bit of influence who decided that a little local parkland could do with some bowling greens on it, and managed to kind of exactly. talk their way into a nice deal.
2: Yeah. Um, Some of the first clubs established which still exist today include Ashfield, Balmain, uh, North Sydney, Gladstone Park, Manly, Neutral Bay, Petersham, Randwick and Waverley.
0: Well those Gladstone Park and Balmain are right next to each other.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I thought there was a green in that park. Yeah, it's a weird club. I did a bit of an inner west bowling tour last (laughs) summer with my friends. And they had like $7 Aperol spritzes, it was unbelievable. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think they really have a big bowling group playing because it's just the one greener and had a jumping castle on it. <laughs> but, um,
1: so, so, so no bowling took place, just Aperol spritzes? Well,
2: this was at like 2 o'clock, so maybe the bowlers had gone home. <laughs> but that was a funny-looking club. In this period, bowlers were regarded as the male elite, and the uniform consisted of a top hat, swallowtail, or frock coat, with a stiff creased shirt and tightly fitted trousers. Right. Um,
1: okay, so it's, not, it's no longer exclusively aristocracy and nobility, but, uh, and definitely. Bonica, but it still helps to be a very wealthy white man. Exactly. To play the
2: game. However, the first female club in New South Wales was the Ashfield Women's Bowling Club, established in 1902 by the wives, daughters and sisters of male bowlers of the Ashfield Men's Bowling Club. But these weren't separate physical clubs. They were just right. a club. So that club that might have had a
0: women's day, women's
2: hour. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: That was like the swimming pools at the time were like that. It definitely the ocean pools had hours for women, right. and hours for men. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So the next period is from 1914 to 1944. So despite two world wars and the Great Depression, bowls continued to grow between 1914 to 1944. 36 new clubs were established in the city, bringing the total to 59. In 1936, half of the clubs in New South Wales were located on municipal or shire land, 35% on club-owned property, and the remainder were established on company-owned, leased or private land.
0: So what's an example of one of the privately established bowling greens? And I'm just interested in why someone might have done that when there seems to have been an abundance of public clubs available.
2: Yeah, it's not people, it's... Um, for example, a race course might have spare land, which they had a bowling club there. Right. Okay. So it wasn't right, owned by okay. the bowling club. It wasn't owned by the, uh, council. the council, but it was owned by another establishment. Yeah. Like
0: the Woolpack example, I suppose.
2: Yeah. I yeah,
1: think actually. So originally that would have been all of them when they, back yeah. in
2: the early days when it was mm. a tavern would have. Yeah. And I think maybe if the oh, RSLs probably didn't exist at that time, but that's an example of today, whereas an RSL has a Bowling Green out the back, so it's not yeah. owned by the bowling club, it's owned by the RSL.
1: Right,
2: okay. Yeah. And so did you say we also had councils building Bowling Greens at that point in time? Um, I think it was more people would go to council ask for the land, yeah. maybe ask for some funds to help build it. There was a government funded work scheme.
1: That would have been in the Depression era. Yeah. Poss- that, yeah. Yeah. Great, uh, employment
2: probably. Yeah. And by the mid-1930s, the image of bowls was evolving. It was no longer seen as a sport solely for elite men. Uniforms were relaxed by this time, consisting of all whites and black leather shoes.
1: All right, so the all whites is actually a relaxed uniform yeah. compared to what they were previously wearing. Yeah.
2: If we can put some photos up or something, I've got one photo, and yeah. Excellent. It, it we'll would definitely not, put it up. Would not be comfortable to play in.
0: You've got the tailcoat and top hat yeah. look. Yeah. Excellent.
2: Uh, in 1929, the New South Wales Ladies Bowling Club Association was established with Balmain, Leichhardt and Rose Bay, some of the first mm-hmm. affiliated clubs. Despite the establishment of the association, numerous clubs across the city did not welcome female bowlers to many years later. Uh, also at this time, female bowlers seemed to face a lot of hostility, so when I was doing some research, I read stories of female bowlers not being let inside male-only clubhouses, even when to escape the rain. So... It appears that they were, they were allowed to play at some clubs, but it still wasn't a great time for them.
1: Right, but kind of this Roaring Twenties period is when you can start to get at least some movement. Exactly. opening it up.
2: Yeah. Um, some of the clubs which still still exist today built in this period include Bondi Bowling Club, Cronulla Bowling Club, Five Dock, Leichhardt, Concord, and Kalara. All
1: right, so those are the interwar
2: yeah. Um, clubs. Yeah. So this next period... Is from 1945 to 1975 and I refer to it as the post-war leisure boom mm. so in the 30 years after World War II, the popularity of sport and recreational activities flourished as the post-war economic boom and new government policy such as the 40-hour work week allowed a greater portion of Australians to undertake leisure activities lawn bowls thrived as the most popular participation sport in the country with the number of clubs in Sydney increasing nearly fourfold from 59 to 211 Wow yeah so in how long was that in 30 10 years 30, 30 years 1945 yep. to 1975
1: okay quadrupling yeah yeah that is that's a boom. Bit...
2: yeah right and this is what yeah. you're saying
1: jet also you've got kind of an explosion of suburban development uh post world war ii so potentially available land as the suburb is being built to to create a, a club like that
0: yeah well i i mean i'm noticing you two with your uh eastern suburbs bowling club references probably have a different idea of like the standard um aesthetic of a bowling club because from what you've said louie a lot of the ones around there were kind of 19th century or early 20th century whereas the bowling club aesthetic that i'm familiar with is a hundred percent from the 60s and 70s yeah um and yeah it's in it's in a suburban neighborhood yeah it might be next to a park or or something like that because that's that's always what i've associated with the boom in bowling clubs but yeah Having, having heard what you've said, I realised maybe that wasn't the view that you came in with, Alistair.
1: Yeah, to be honest, I was just pretty like, ignorant of the whole thing. But, that, but it seems like from what, from these numbers, the vast majority of the clubs were built during this post-war boom. So, so actually, the, the quintessential Sydney uh, bowling club would be a suburban club that
2: was built at the same time as the suburb was built, more or less. Would that make sense? Let me find some clubs that were built in that era and see if they ring a bell.
0: I've seen some of your lists of clubs and they're very long.
2: Yeah, I've got the Excel up so I can... Uh, so we've got Auburn, Mascot, Waverton, Bellevue Hill, Francis Drake Bowling Club, Roselands Bowling Club, North Manly, Artarman, Gordon, Ironfield. Okay, so there's a lot of infill places infill there. Yeah, they're there. New
1: suburbs, that I imagine, at that time, yeah.
2: actually. Yeah, I think if there wasn't a club, a local club, the ex-servicemen would just build one right so yeah so
1: it's more an explosion of popularity Mm. and um demand for for that sport rather than necessarily just that new suburbs are being built
2: yeah and there's a lot of examples of suburbs containing multiple clubs
0: Mm.
1: right okay so the density of clubs also increased dramatically at that point
2: yeah so i don't really know why bowls exactly
1: yeah, that's, that's the question mm. that kind of comes up, right? Yeah. In my mind is, why bowls? Like, why why bowls? was that the thing that, that mm. was just wildly popular?
2: If I had to guess, I think it's because of the social side of it. You can bring your partner down mm-hmm. after a day at work. You can play on the weekends. You can have a beer. Mm-hmm. It's not just a physical sport.
0: Yeah, the physical barrier to entry is extremely low, exactly. which might have helped, which is obviously why it's popular with predominantly old people. But also might have helped in a return serviceman context. Mm. It's not exclusionary against people who are, yeah. you know, in a wheelchair or whatever.
2: And I think they would have been encouraged to join a group or a club for the social aspect of it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so at this point, I wonder whether the, the average age of a bowling club member would have been a bit lower. Maybe this was kind of adults who weren't necessarily retirees, but just wanted to be part of a social club and and have something to do together on the weekends and things like that
2: yeah i would tend to say that's a pretty good guess towards the end of this period women's bowls became widely accepted and thrived the introduction of the mixed bowls format was so popular that the few clubs which continued to ban women struggled to draw a crowd basically just seemed that if a man's wife couldn't play bowls at his club he'd just pack up and go to a club where she could yeah Mm. makes sense
0: I mean, that might have had something to do with the surging popularity.
2: Yeah. Think... <laughs> it probably helped. Yeah. <laughs> they suddenly opened it
1: up to 50% of the population.
2: The post-war immigration influx also increased the ethnic diversity of clubs, with many European-born migrants transferring their knowledge of similar forms of, of the game, such mm. as bo- bocce or bowls. Mm-hmm. So there was actually a few Italian champions okay. in that year and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, and that would make sense. I think also, while you do have uh, increasing... Kind of diversity or multiculturalism. It's also like to fit into Australian society. It might have been a nice way of kind of mm. finding a sport that was a very British sport that was a very mainstream Australian sport, and then be able to at least bring over your interests and skills from where whichever country you were from, but fit into society. Yeah,
2: yeah. If you look, a lot of bowling greens they have names, and they'll have a big sign, and you can look at the names of the bowling green, and there's a lot of ethnic names. Right, like across clubs i don't know lots of italian yeah yeah okay interesting so yeah also buoyed by a desire to rebuild community in post-war australia bowling clubs continued to act as a local social center with many non-bowling members joining clubs uh, solely for their social activities Mm. so that's pretty similar today i know a lot of people are members of clubs just so they can get a dollar off their drinks and Feel a part of a community.
0: Yeah, I was a member of Marrickville Bowling Club for quite a while because if you lived within 5Ks and you wanted to go to gigs there, it was mandatory. Yeah, so oh, they sorry. still
2: have that register. It's a, it's a thing in the Registered Clubs Act where if you live within the area, you, you have to become a member if, before you walk in the door. I know not all clubs are very strict in policing it, but yeah, some are.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting law. Does that go back to your 6 o'clock swill thing at all, Jed Because I think you were mentioning something about... The law stated if you were outside a certain radius, you could get a drink because you were considered a traveler who didn't have access to drinks otherwise.
0: Yeah, I don't know anything too specific about this, but basically, yeah, there was a lot of different rules governing how alcohol could be consumed. It wasn't just a blanket. There's none. But so there was these specific rules that said, yeah, you could have access to alcohol if you met certain criteria, and one of them was if you were a traveling person, presumably so you could have a drink with your tea. So... I think the the modern manifestation of that is that every registered club has a five kilometer radius map on its door, yeah. and if you live within that five kilometer radius, you must be a member to enter. And if you live outside of it, you don't. Which creates this sort of weird inverse disincentive to be to go to a local,
1: right? <laughs> it's actually more difficult to get in the door <clears throat> than if you go somewhere.
0: Yeah, there. and because <laughs> people, you know, the people who run these places are aware of that, the barriers to entry are usually extremely low. So it's like fill out this thing, take a photo, pay you know some nominal fee, like it might be $5, right. and you can go in. And quite often membership to a registered club will give you, say, 10% off drinks or something like that. So, or they'll even give you a whole booklet of vouchers that like dramatically exceed the cost of your membership. Right. And I found out recently that the reason why clubs want you to be members so much and they're making it so easy is because any drinks that are spent by members they don't have to pay tax on
1: oh that are purchased wow. by members you mean like, yeah no because case.
0: it's because a you know it's that whole community thing right,
1: right. it's not it's no longer purely commercial
0: yeah mm-hmm. so it, it sort of falls under their almost like charity remit right. right whereas okay. those out-of-towners or non-members are um that's like commercial output i suppose yeah so people. yeah so that so that's why bowling clubs want you to be a member
1: Interesting. Okay, so there is some incentive as well. It's not just purely a, a antiquated law that's a frustration uh, because it means that it's difficult to just get people local people in the door. There's also some kind of other potential tax benefits to the system.
2: Yeah. It's a win-win for both, so.
0: Well, I think it's an antiquated law that's kind of got legs of its own and has become something way beyond what anyone ever would have considered it would be. Yeah. And has no no relevance for its original purpose at all. <laughs>
1: Because That's what I was wondering whether whether we were whether you were expecting it to kind of fall away and that law to be repealed, but it seems like it's pretty entrenched.
0: Yeah. Well yeah, and I mean, it's an interesting sort of part, I guess, of any registered club is one of the I mean, as a map person, one of the first things that always strikes me walking to a place like that is there's this map sitting right front and centre, often framed yeah. with the five K
2: <laughs> radius of the club.
0: It's pretty weird. Yeah. Uh, you don't go into many other places that have a
2: map like that
1: yeah that's definitely
2: true yeah and i think it also helps clubs promote themselves with their membership because a lot of them have to appease council if they're they're leasing off council so if they can say they've got this many members it helps them renew their lease so join your club yeah Yeah. that's the biggest tip that's
1: the takeaway message here yeah
2: so louis our
0: boom years have resulted in a quadrupling of the number of clubs across sydney Mm.
2: what happens next well, the next period is 1976 to 1991, so just 15 years, and this is what I call the, the start of the decline. Um, that was quick. Yeah, it, 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 it didn't take long. <laughs> this stagnation. Yeah. yeah. So after the boom, clubs continued to thrive, but um, from the early 80s, the decline in the popularity of the game became apparent. Despite the continued suburbanisation of the city, clubs were no longer established in new residential areas. In the 15 years after 1975, only two new clubs were established, and four, including Parramatta and Bellevue Hill, were closed. On top of closing clubs, membership numbers were also dropping significantly at many clubs across the city. I read some articles of clubs which were closing down, and they had presidents and staff blaming things, on the like of increasing popularity of RSL and sporting clubs, which offered entertainment and facilities that the local bowling club couldn't match. Mm -hmm. The costs of running a club, so particularly the upkeep of bowling greens, which is quite a hefty cost because clubs have to employ one or two full-time green keepers. And also the water, uh, things like that. So their costs that an RSL or sporting club wouldn't have to pay. Mm -hmm. Uh, The number of clubs located in proximity to one another was... It was just no longer sustainable to have this many clubs.
1: Yeah, it seems like a classic overreach or whatever yeah. you call it. Or you have a boom that's unsustainable.
2: Yeah. And my personal favourite is the introduction of random breath testing. So the former treasurer of the Lane Cove RSL Bowling Club, Harry Mounter, stated in an article, Because of the breath tests, all our big drinkers and poker machine players are down. Mm. and the former president of the Parramatta bowling club also blamed RBT for a loss of income.
0: Yeah. No, it had a huge effect in reshaping the sort of drinking landscape of the state, that's for sure.
1: Right. Okay, so moving more towards drinking at home then because otherwise you're going to struggle to get home. Is that the idea?
0: Yeah, well, you couldn't You couldn't go to the bolo anymore. Because, I mean, I think the thing to keep in mind here is that this is a point in time when people get around, as, as with now, people predominantly get around Sydney in a car. Mm. Yeah. But it was a time when no one had ever really thought that you had a great deal of responsibility about, you know, not drink driving. So once it became not a viable way to get around anymore, you know, it had a huge effect on on licensed venues. And I guess we don't think about that too much today because we've grown up with it. Um, But, yeah, it, it had a huge effect because venues just relied on. On that and especially these places aren't accessible for like transport, they didn't have shuttles, that wasn't a thing yet. So, they didn't have
1: courtesy
2: buses back then,
1: it took them a few years to figure it out. Actually.
2: Yeah, maybe the, the membership numbers just weren't sustainable to have one whereas those big RSLs could kind of afford to just have a bus on hand to ship their patrons.
0: I guess it's, it's the other thing of like the concentration of um, the all this stuff costs money to run, mm. you know, the greens, the bus, the whole thing. Yeah, um, so it's easier for a few bigger clubs to pr- provide that service.
2: Yeah, so from the late 80s, bowling associations began devising strategies to retain their diminishing membership. Some of these strategies included uniform relaxation again, this time allowing (laughs) colours for both the men and women. And no pants. (laughs) Optional (laughs) pants. Also, some clubs started selling off a green to developers for a quick cash injection. So that's why you might see clubs such as Balmain as some townhouses right on top of it and that's because it was sold off in the early 90s
1: okay actually interestingly yeah. uh on that note we were looking for a preschool for my elder daughter yeah and bronte bowling club I exactly. think it is, has, has yeah. a preschool on, on one
2: of the old greens So yeah. it's kind of
1: like a, pre- a preschool set up in the bowling club yeah. right next door um so yeah lots of kind of creative uses you can kind of property. pick
2: them if you just kind of see a square lot with some <laughs> building on it <laughs> next to a bowling club you can take a guess And so the last period is from 1992 to late 2020 when I finished my thesis, and this is basically the continuation of the decline. Uh, The decline in popularity of bowls continued throughout the 90s. The Paddington Bowling Club's membership fell from 500 in 1992 to just 130 by 1997. Many clubs now fighting for survival were forced to evolve. So, Barefoot Bowls reformed clubs' economic strategies, placing a much greater focus on generating income through social bowlers. Many, including the Paddington Bowling Club, reinvented themselves as hip social clubs with live music and food. This renaissance led to a short-lived resurgence in membership, with 8,500 new members signing up in 2001. There we go. Do they even have a bowling green there? Paddington? Yeah. They closed there's a journalist called wendy bacon and she wrote a thing on it which i can link you because it's just really interesting to read yeah basically a former wallaby and a town planner a corrupt town planner came together inserted themselves (laughs) in the club elected themselves as president basically they had a plan from the start to buy the land then i'm not sure what happened in the intervening years but next thing it was sold to some another developer And it was being used by Arnold Schwarzenegger's former trainer, who was living there. And literally yesterday I saw an article about how it's being returned to the local Aboriginal Land Council. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, but despite the best efforts of many clubs, 80 have closed in the past 30 years in Sydney alone. So some of these include Waverton, Hornsby, Paddington, Brighton-La-Sands, Kensington and Camperdown. Mm,
0: Campertown is a community garden now I think Yeah. Oh, or a yeah. fancy restaurant yep. or possibly both that's correct
1: I think it's both yeah I've, I've been there there's a little cafe as well
2: yeah yeah so that's all I'm really I could go into predicting the future but I'm I worry that might get a bit too planning I
0: think what I would be interested to know is where mm. you think more generally I suppose what you think like culturally yeah will happen to bowling in Sydney as an expert in the field
2: mm, it's a tricky one I think a lot will continue as thriving social hubs. Those which are struggling financially, it depends on if they're located on council land or private land. If they're located on council land, the council just won't renew their lease and they'll turn it into open space or they'll turn it into a community facility. They might repurpose it. So for example, Hornsby was, the Greens there were repurposed for tennis courts. Mm-hmm. So yeah, most most c- clubs located on council owned land will be returned to the community in some way or another. And of the 128 existing clubs, 42 are located on public land. Okay. And the remaining 78 clubs are located on private land.
0: So their future could be as likely to be redeveloped
2: as residential if they're not sort of financially viable. There's probably three options. So if they're located on private land and they're an independent club, they might just choose to sell part of their land for development. They'll just sell a green, something like that or they may even try to redevelop the land so there's clubs such as car- i believe it's the hills bowling club they've currently got a planning proposal in to redevelop it into a like a seniors housing thing with them it looks like a multi-level like greens and car parking and these yeah quite large developments depending on how they turn out that will be the key as to what the future of bowling clubs are mm. Because if they're successful, I think many clubs will follow suit if they're struggling financially, mm-hmm. but I have a feeling that they won't be, or at least I'm hoping they won't be. It's just not the same as what we envision a bowling club to be. <laughs> there are certain characteristics of a bowling club, which make them such important venues for generating social wealth. Those new bowling clubs just don't have those same characteristics.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was really interested when I was reading what you would written in your thesis about the idea that bowling clubs have a really significant role to play in society as kind of meeting points and communal spaces for yep. the local community, and that what you're saying about the about new development is that potentially you lose a lot of those characteristics, and that it's something that we actually want to treasure in Sydney that we have these institutions dotted all over the city. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was wondering if you could just pull together what it is that makes bowling clubs such special places um as a community community space Uh, because i think even in, in the kind of wake of coronavirus i was reading quite a few articles around the same time that i was reading what you'd written about the the significance of these like third places that aren't your house or your work but they're another place that you go to meet up with people and spend time together and that that's what people have been missing so much during coronavirus when they're not able to do anything but be in their houses or potentially their work sites and that perhaps this could be a time when we realise just how significant and important places like Bolo's are.
2: Um, Yeah.
1: But what is it that makes them such kind of nice places or important places?
2: Yeah, so the term third places was coined by sociologist Ray Oldenburg, and basically a third place is a home away from home. Oldenburg has eight characteristics of third places, which he goes through in a book titled The Great Good Place, which is worth a read if you're interested In this topic. So, third places are neutral ground where no one is a host or a visitor and no one feels the obligations associated with these roles. So, rather than going to someone's house Mm -hmm. and someone being a host, you can just meet in a neutral place. I really struggle with all those formalities, bringing like a present (laughs) and all of that. The second is levelers. So, third places are inclusive spaces open to the general public in which all, regardless of their rank in the workplace or society, can feel welcomed. And I think you really see this at bowling clubs, you know, you've got Bankers and bus drivers and everyone in between yeah it wasn't
1: always the case in bowling clubs but, but thankfully is
2: now. since 1845
0: well <laughs> and the women in the 50s yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so conversation is the main activity so the nature of third places as levelers on neutral ground encourages conversation which is a central characteristic I guess of these spaces mm-hmm. they're accessible and accommodating so third places are easy to access and accommodating to all patrons
1: Right, which I guess being like spread all over Sydney means that you've got one probably
2: quite close to your house. Exactly, yep. Yeah. And regulars is a very important one. So all third places have a regular who feel at home in these spaces and establish the character of the place. Their acceptance of newcomers is crucial to sustaining a third place. So I guess a lot of those bowling clubs in the 70s and stuff which didn't accept maybe an ethnic diverse group or women died off because they didn't have those regulars which were accepting... Whereas now, probably some of the the better bowling clubs, I think you'll start to, like, you notice if you walk in, most tend to be pretty welcoming because they just, they need people to come visit and they understand that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you need the old timers to be, like, Mm. the classic characters of your place. Exactly, uh, yeah. yeah. Who everyone comes, kind of, to see, in a way.
2: Yeah. Uh, The sixth and most important for old bowling clubs is their low profile. So third places are modest their structures are interior for the most part unimpressive and they have a distinct homely feel so when you think of your bowling club that's what most people tend to think of and i guess it's those newer newer developments which will lose that that will be probably the main thing they lose and you will no longer feel like you're going to not someone's house but you know a place with a similar aura
0: relaxed vibe
1: yeah 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 and i think that that's generally a thing with any kind of redevelopment or repurposing of a space that once you make it very glitzy and yeah, glamorous, it stops feeling like a yeah. like a relaxing
2: place where you can... Yeah. Exactly. Playful mood, so the atmosphere's playful, light-hearted banter usually dominates the conversation.
0: Sounds like a bolo.
2: Yeah, So the, and the last one is a home away from home. So people can go down to these clubs and feel as if they are home, and I know a lot of them did during the pandemic, would continue to go down to the bolo and just sit outside sit on the benches and talk to one another because they needed that social support during that time
1: i remember seeing that a lot that mm. was, yeah yeah yeah. it was very sweet to see actually even though the doors were closed there was just people congregating kind of like spaced out apart outside yeah you know, just exactly to see their friends.
2: yeah yes that's why traditional bowling clubs are so important and i guess that's my main fear if we start to see bowling clubs being developed into yeah glitzy glam developments we'll lose that and we'll lose the social benefits that bowling clubs have
1: well that was a wonderful story thank you so much for coming in today and chatting to us about that louis uh, we really appreciated having someone who's obviously done so much research on this and is so passionate about bowling clubs and it was a, a great experience i think to have a guest on the show for the first time It worked really smoothly and was very enjoyable uh, for both of us It's been really great having you. I imagine there are probably quite a lot of people listening who would love to know more or who might um, be interested in bolos or want to get in touch with you for a number of reasons. Is there any way they can contact you or how can they find out more about all of
2: this research that you've done? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really fun. I guess we'll put a link in the show notes to my thesis Mm -hmm. and I'll also put some contact details in there. So I'd love to hear if anyone's got any stories, just reach out. Awesome.
1: Uh, Well, thank you so much. It was great. Uh, We will now, I guess, move on to regular proceedings for the episode, which would be time for a clue from Jed, I believe.
0: Okay, Alistair, I do have a clue for you. Let me just pull that up. All right, here's our clue for my first episode of Season 3. This story is a well and truly rum-soaked story Mm. about Sydney Cove and her preservation Oh, wow. It's, you've gone for the short, pithy
1: clue, I see.
0: <laughs> in the genre of clues that we're starting to develop? It? Yes, I have.
1: Yeah, I like it. It's got a lot packed in there. Okay, so it's... It does. It's got rum-soaked preservation of Sydney You're gonna Cove. You're going to need the full two weeks
0: to decipher this one, I reckon. Yeah. So Sorry, can you give it, give it again? It was you can rum- hear it again. This story is a well and truly rum-soaked story about Sydney Cove and her preservation.
1: Okay. Um, nah, I I currently have no idea at all. I was thinking maybe it could have something to do with the rocks and the green bands and the fight for the preservation of the rocks. That's mm-hmm. um that's
0: a few hundred years off the usual uh rum Sydney period. Yeah, uh, I don't know the
1: rum doesn't come in there. So that's the second half of it. The only thing I thought I have there. <laughs> and then in terms of being rum soaked, but well, why were they trying to preserve? Mm. Mm. Something to ponder, perhaps. You said you had a couple of maritime episodes and some that weren't about Sydney, but this one seems to be fair and square about Sydney. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Can't make any promises there. I'm very much looking forward to that, as I'm sure all of our listeners are. In the meantime, while you're waiting for our next episode, please feel free to get in touch with us at storiesfromsydney@gmail.com. Uh You can also follow us on Instagram, at Stories from Sydney. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please continue to tell your friends about it that season three is well underway. And also subscribe. And if you have the time and inclination, please feel free to leave a review or a star rating because that definitely helps us to reach more people out there who might be
0: interested in the history of Sydney. See you next time for my story from Sydney.